From the San Francisco Public Press, you're listening to Civic. Fentanyl-related deaths among teens more than tripled across the U.S. in recent years, and two-thirds of teens who died had someone nearby who didn't provide an overdose response. Now San Francisco high school students are being trained to recognize drug abuse and to reverse overdoses. If someone is going through this problem or I see someone having an overdose, I can really help them out. We should be teaching our students how this is performed. But it's not just teens who want to help. Some city residents are now carrying overdose reversal medication just in case. Every life is worth saving, and it doesn't matter what it is that they did to try to end that life, it's still worth saving. Today, we hear about an organization that's dedicated to teaching people how to reverse overdoses. And we drop in on a training session to find out how it's done. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and this is Civic. It's been 10 months since I began working on this series on San Francisco's overdose crisis, and since then, my reporting has taken a completely different direction than I expected. I thought I was going to be reporting on the city's newly opened wellness hubs. That's back when the public health department seemed poised to open half a dozen locations where people could consume drugs under supervision in case they overdosed, while also receiving health care, hygiene services, food assistance, connection to shelter, and treatment referrals. I have to admit, I harbored hope that they'd help save lives and ease the chaos on the streets, like what happened 20 years ago when a similar facility opened in my former hometown of Vancouver. But what actually happened in San Francisco during the months after I began reporting on the drug crisis was a total 180 from what I expected. Instead of opening wellness hubs, city and law enforcement officials launched a program to arrest people for drug use and force them to detox in jail, even though numerous studies show that this practice increases the risk of overdose death once they're released. Since then, San Francisco's overdose death rate has hovered around two or three fatalities a day, leaving little doubt that this will be the deadliest year on record. With rhetoric from the top getting increasingly heated, I was starting to feel dejected at the loss of compassion for those suffering from substance use disorder. But then I shifted my focus and found a younger generation full of sympathy and understanding who were training to save lives. Drugs or any overdose isn't about your age or who you are. It's about a bunch of different circumstances and anyone should be learning that. That's Jennifer Mendoza, a senior at Burton High School in San Francisco. She's among more than a thousand teens in three states volunteering to be part of a program called the Faces for the Future Public Health Youth Corps. The program trains high school students in medical first aid, including overdose reversal. Sadly, its popularity may be linked to some grim statistics. 480 teens aged 15 to 19 died of fentanyl-related overdoses in California in 2020 and 2021, according to state data. And the work that FACES does could make a crucial difference. They train us for Narcan training or mental health training, and it really helps a lot, you know? Like, I have friends that have some mental disorders, or someone could be on the street and have an overdose, and I know what to do in those situations to help out my community. If down the road, you know, someone is going through this 
problem or I see someone having an overdose, I can really help them out. And I think it's really important, especially in our school and at my age, that we should be teaching our students how this is performed and we can help out more people with that. Faces for the Future is a healthcare career program for underrepresented students in high school and early college. It got its start in Oakland Children's Hospital in 2000 and now operates in New Mexico, Colorado, and Michigan. The program enrolls about 1,200 students a year in 26 languages. Brooke Bergantz is the program's deputy director. We train them in motivational interviewing, so how to have difficult conversations with individuals. We're also activating them as youth leaders, so they may be focused on youth leadership in any kind of issue that's facing their community. A lot of our young people have been impacted by a variety of substance use issues in their families and their communities. Many of them have seen overdose on the streets in the neighborhoods in which they're walking to school or hanging out with their friends. Some of them have lost family members to overdose. And so I think that in general, mental health and substance use disorder are a topic that's near and dear to their hearts. It's something they get really passionate about, particularly coming out of the pandemic. It's something that they talk about a lot, wanting to be there for friends and family and understanding that these certifications are not just good boxes to tick professionally in terms of their own pathway toward career. But in addition, they often speak of feeling more confident like if something happened, I would know what to do. And I think that that's a really important thing for a young person. One of the program's innovations is something called mental health first aid. That's a key part of mitigating drug-related deaths since more than 40% of teens who died of overdose from 2019 to 2021 had a history of mental health conditions, according to the CDC. It's in some ways kind of like CPR, except for mental health. So what you do is you learn the early signs and symptoms of different mental health challenges and how to approach the conversation with a person. So how do I get that started? How do I destigmatize talking about mental health? And then it follows a trajectory of escalation. So how do I support someone who may be entering a worsening stage. So for example, maybe they're experiencing panic attacks. How do I help them with that? We talk about overdose. We talk about non-suicidal self-injury. We talk about how to handle someone's thoughts of suicide. And so it's a full training. It takes usually a day. And you know, it's following that trajectory of sort of that initial sense of like, I think someone's struggling. How can I help connect them to some care? All the way to how how do I handle a mental health emergency, which I think is really important. Mendoza said if she'd learned these skills earlier, she might have been able to help a friend who she hasn't seen for years. We're not really sure where they are right now, but we have a feeling that they're not here because they did a lot of drugs and, you know, we're just rebelling a lot. And sometimes we talk about it with my other friends, like, I wonder where they're at now. You miss that person. You just wish they wouldn't make those actions. And if you could have helped out in a way, you could have helped them. And I feel like if I was more educated at that age, I could have had helped him or found help and given them the resources. The death of so many young people has left an aftermath of mourning parents. And many of them are leading awareness campaigns to help protect other vulnerable teens. Among them is Laura Didier. 
Last May, she addressed a California State Assembly Committee dedicated to overdose prevention. Zach, my baby, he was 17. He was a senior at Whitney High School in Rockland. He was a straight-A student, an athlete, a self-taught musician, a kind friend to all, a loving boyfriend, and an all-around amazing kid. I watched a coroner take my son out of his bedroom. He and a buddy each decided to experiment, try a Percocet pill. Those pills must not have had much fentanyl in them. That's what's so sinister about these pills. They're not made with any content uniformity. One pill might contain very little. Unfortunately, two days later, Zach decided on his own to try one more. And that pill killed him very quickly in his bedroom overnight. And there are no words to express the excruciating pain of losing someone so young, so precious, with such promise to a danger you didn't even know existed. And Zach's story is becoming all too common in our state. Fentanyl has irreversibly changed the drug landscape into this nightmare that we are witnessing today. I'm not the only mom who has found their child dead in their bedroom. We've conducted targeted research to find that Two-thirds of students between the ages of 13 and 17 are not aware of counterfeit pills. This knowledge gap is killing our kids. It is imperative that we fill that gap with information. And I know that they are responsive to it. I know because since the beginning of this school year, I have spoken in front of probably upwards of 70,000 high school and middle school kids and their parents. They receive this information willingly and gratefully. They know that this is killing their peer group. They need to see that us adults care about them. It looks like awareness campaigns in schools and spreading by word of mouth might be helping. Last year across California, 151 teens aged 15 to 19 died of overdose. That's a 40% decline in two years, according to state data. Heightened awareness might also explain the growing number of fentanyl-related emergency room visits among teens as peers become more familiar with the symptoms of overdose and are quicker to call for help. Last year, 330 ER visits statewide involved teens overdosing on fentanyl. That's up from 262 the year before. But it's not just high school students who are paying closer attention. I met some students at UCSF who've taken it upon themselves to organize overdose reversal training seminars. My name is Maya Scarpetta. I am a second year PhD student in the doctoral program, Epidemiology and Translational Sciences. Hi, I'm Rachel Murrow. I am also in the doctoral program in Epidemiology and Translational Sciences at UCSF. I'm a first year PhD student. I don't think that anybody living in SF is not in the presence of drug use, whether it's your friends, your family, your neighbors, folks that you interact with on a daily basis. And I think a lot of us kind of intellectualize it and focus on it from a research perspective or like we'll learn all the facts we can, but it's like, what would we do if somebody was actually standing in front of us and needed our help, which is not 
out of the realm of possibility at all. So we started thinking back in the fall about getting UCSF community members together to talk about like kind of our place in the community, what role we can play, and then also to train folks who haven't been trained in naloxone administration and to give out naloxone to those who wanted it. So we wanted to create a more engaging space and also like a more holistic kind of event where folks could learn about harm reduction from the research perspective, get like a really comprehensive training, get their Narcan all in one kind of experience, and then also potentially meet folks who they could like dialogue with and talk more about their role in harm reduction. To provide the training, they partnered with an organization called The Dope Project, aka Drug Overdose Prevention and Education, which is a branch of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. The Dope Project began in 2003, and today no other organization in the country hands out as many Narcan dispensers in a single city. In 2022, the organization handed out more than 33,000 doses of the medication and received reports of more than 9,000 overdose reversals. I attended a training session at UCSF led by the Dope Project's Melissa Matheny last April. The auditorium was packed with a couple of hundred people leaving standing room only. When someone passes that threshold, what kind of happens is with an opioid, the breathing slows down, right? The, the heart rate slows down. The ability to control temperature in our bodies changes. So color change is one of the things that kind of occurs when somebody's overdosing. So like you were saying, for people who are lighter skinned, right, like me, I would turn blue, possibly the first to go is like the fingertips, right, and the lips. So I could turn blue, I could be completely like devoid of color, like very pale. People with darker skin complexions are going to look a little different, kind of more gray and ashen, right, is what happens first. We can notice that somebody's breathing a breath less than every five seconds. And another one of the most important things to recognize when someone is overdosing, and if nothing else, right, is how you differentiate, is that that person will not be able to respond to you. So that person, no matter what you do, is not going to be able to respond. Matheny explained how to engage with someone suspected of overdosing while emphasizing the need to maintain personal safety. Say you're basically on the street, right? Maybe you're walking to and from work, maybe you're doing something like that, and you see somebody who looks a little concerning. When we're responding to an overdose, we go through several steps, okay, to check on a person. So the first one is gonna be, you know, if you know the person's name, hey, uh, Janet, are you okay? So the first one's verbal stimuli. If that person doesn't respond verbally, we move into the second step, right? And the second step is physical stimuli. When somebody's overdosing, kind of a trick we do, right, is to give someone some pain, okay? Because pain makes us remember that we're alive, right? And so something that we commonly do is what I call a chest noogie, okay? Other people call it a sternum rub, but you take this part of your fist, right, and you rack their chest, okay? Even if I think that somebody's not responsive, or even if I think someone's unconscious, I'm always gonna tell someone what I'm gonna do, right? If I'm gonna touch someone, I'm gonna tell them what I'm gonna do. So if I'm going up to somebody on the street, 
you know, I do that verbal. Sometimes what I do is I'll tell them that I'm going to kick their foot just to do a little tap because I like to give myself some space, right, in case I need to back up because I've had people wake up very unhappy. So I like to give myself that kind of little head start, right? But yeah, always telling people what you're going to do and when you're going to touch them, right? Sometimes if you're in like a colder climate, the chest is not as accessible. You know, people wear thick jackets and different things. You can do one of these. Rack this area of the lip and that hurts too. You don't got to do it too hard, but that will alert someone if the area of the chest isn't available. Also, a mom pinch, terrible. If you try it, it's very uncomfortable and will definitely wake somebody up if they're not overdosing, right? And so basically, if we do these things with somebody, if we verbally try to get them to respond to us, if we physically do a sternum rub and they're still not responding, we do another final step before we move into the response of the overdose. And that is to tell that person that we're about to Narcan them if they don't wake up. And I have had multiple instances that I most definitely thought that I was gonna have to Narcan somebody. And the second they hear that word, they just pop right up, you know? <laughs> if that doesn't work, we move into our overdose response. Messini demonstrated how to administer the Narcan nasal spray and explained that just deploying the medication isn't the end of the process. As soon as you hit the bottom of this person's nostril, you press that red button in, and that is one dose. So this is like, you know, Flonase, right? Everybody knows Flonase, lots of allergies around the Bay Area. It's kind of like that. It's a nasal spray that those membranes take in. After you give your first dose of Narcan, you want to get on the phone and you want to call 911. And we want to do that because we don't know if somebody has co-occurring health issues. We don't know if somebody has heart problems, all kinds of stuff, right? I highly recommend that you say that that person is non-responsive. And that way, EMS in San Francisco is pretty solid and they get to the scene most of the time within like five minutes, five to seven minutes. While you are waiting for an ambulance to arrive, the most important thing and that people have been doing for years and still do in other states where Narcan access is very limited is you wanna do rescue breathing. You're gonna rescue breathe until those EMTs get there or until that five minutes is up. And kind of what we do when that five minutes is up is we repeat this process again, right? We wait for that Narcan to take effect, and if it doesn't, then we use another dose and repeat the process of rescue breathing. A lot of the time we're getting reports of people using like two Narcans in general. That has risen since fentanyl has become really prevalent in San Francisco. If you are successful, right, and if this person comes back when you're with them, you're going to start seeing their color return. People feel differently, right, when, when they're resuscitated. Some people are very confused. If you've ever seen somebody have like a grand mal seizure and what that looks like when they come out of it, like where am I? What happened? Why are all these people around me? So just, just kind of remember when somebody comes back, people are freaked out. People don't know what's going on. People go into acute opioid withdrawal immediately. Okay, so somebody is going to be feeling like the flu times 10. 
And a lot of the time, especially when we're responding to an overdose on the street, that person does not have a home to go to at night. And so imagine feeling so sick and being on the street. It's very rough. You know, acting with compassion, right? And also giving that person some space. I think it's really important to like give someone some space to kind of wake up and let them know like, hey buddy, you know, I just had a Narcan you, you overdosed, I'm sorry. But the most important thing is to tell that person, to tell them that they can go back into an overdose because people especially like to use during this time, right? Because they feel sick and they're not gonna get the effects of that use when this Narcan is still blocking those opioid receptors, right? And so all of those opioids are gonna come flooding back in as soon as that Narcan wears off. So people are at risk. And telling people to like, if you have Narcan on them, give them Narcan. Tell them, hey, if you're not gonna go to the hospital, like please stay with a friend. Please, if you don't have a friend, please be in public where someone can see you because you are at risk right now when this wears off. We'll return to our conversation about grassroots efforts to confront San Francisco's overdose crisis in just a moment. The annual Newsmatch Challenge is going on right now. That means when you support our work, your donation will be matched by a pool of funds created to support local news. Please join today at sfpublicpress.org. Become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift. However you choose to support us, you have our thanks. This is KSFP LP 102.5 FM. Before the break, we talked about the DOE Project's training sessions for the UCSF community. The organization also trains people who live in places with the highest concentration of overdose fatalities in San Francisco, single-room occupancy buildings, or SROs. These SROs provide supportive housing and services to people with long histories of homelessness. It's the Housing First philosophy that we covered in our second episode of this series, discussing the connection between the opioid crisis and homelessness. The idea is that people with substance use disorder get housing, counseling, and treatment, and they aren't kicked out for using drugs as they would in a treatment-first model. Studies have shown that, compared to treatment-first programs, housing-first clients are less likely to drop out of treatment and significantly less likely to use or abuse substances. Kelly Knight is a medical anthropologist specializing in substance use and mental health. I really respect sober living environments. I think it's a really important choice for people, and it should be available. But we also need to recognize that sometimes that's not, you know, life is long. And there's a lot of different iterations and relationships that people have with their substance use over time. And so how can we create systems that, that acknowledge that and help protect people, give them the support that they need, as opposed to doing the opposite, which would be, you know, a sudden eviction. Take Susan Lefevre, a resident of an SRO called the Minnelli. You have someone like me that needs it, not just for emotional support, but I was in a car accident 10 years ago. We met her in our first episode. Lefevre said she consumed drugs more moderately after moving into stable living conditions, but she still relies on drug use to cope with chronic pain and emotional trauma. It hit the grooves on the side of the road. It veered off down into this embankment, and it hit two huge boulder rocks at 75 miles an hour. 
it separated my skull and my vertebrae. It fractured my third vertebrae and my L4. It collapsed both halves of my lungs and a hairline fracture in my whole upper sternum. I wake up every morning I'm going through back spasms and it starts from my L4 and it works its way up to my third vertebrae and sometimes it's very, very painful, especially as it travels up. So that process can take anywhere from two to four hours. With street pharmaceuticals, you go through that for 20 minutes and then you can sustain yourself throughout the day. I mean, it still comes back, but it's not as bad. I have a dog I have to take care of and, you know, and other responsibilities in my adult life. Why rely on the street pharmaceuticals rather than having a prescription pharmaceutical? Stuff like Vicodin puts me to sleep. When it comes to putting myself to sleep, I don't respond to any drugs that basically what they consider downers because I like having the energy during the day to do what I need to and to sleep it off, that'll just put me into a depression that I don't need to be in. <laughs> did it change your drug use at all, having housing? Actually, it did. My intake is considerably less. There's not the emotional stress. There's also a horrible irony connected with moving into a safe haven. While living on the street is gravely detrimental, it does let others notice when a person is overdosing. Using drugs in isolation means no one may notice until it's too late. Kelly Knight explains. There can be a complex relationship between gaining housing and increased overdose vulnerability. And so what do we do for people who are unsheltered? And then what do we do as they transition into what we want, which is permanent housing of some kind, supportive or otherwise? And then what happens in those housing settings that we need to predict and pay attention to for their overdose vulnerabilities? A Chronicle investigation last year found that 40% of people who fatally overdosed from 2019 to 2022 died while inside an SRO in the Tenderloin or along 6th Street. To address this, the DOPE Project collaborated with the San Francisco Department of Public Health on an overdose prevention training program specifically designed for people living in permanent supportive housing. In February 2021, two SROs were recruited to participate in the pilot, the Cadillac and Minalee. The project involved recruiting residents to become peer responders in cooperation with the building service provider, DISH, aka Delivering Innovation in Supportive Housing. The peer responders were given overdose reversal training using Narcan. Residents got emergency buttons to push in case of overdose, these sound an alert on a peer responder's phone, which launches them into action. Susan Lefevre is now a peer responder. She says it's a system that works because people in supportive housing can be distrustful of authority. So if something goes wrong, they're more likely to reach out to her than the building's staff. I think we have one of the lowest OD rates out of any other SRO because of the peer leadership expansion. And most people they're going to respond to people like us within their community a lot better, a lot warmer, with a little bit more trust than some, somebody that works at the front desk. It feels like I'm useful, like I have a sense of purpose. I'm not just one of the statistics in the SRO that I'm actually helping within the community. Every life is worth saving, and it doesn't matter what it is that they did to try to end that life, it's still worth saving. 
It's not just high school students or the UCSF community or SRO tenants who want to help save the lives of residents, friends, and neighbors. Untold numbers of San Francisco residents are now carrying Narcan just in case they come across a complete stranger overdosing on the street. Last year, a post went viral on the Reddit forum AskSF that said, Is it normal for so many people to be carrying Narcan? Hundreds of people shared why they carried Narcan and urged others to do the same, most notably if they spent time in the Tenderloin, South of Market, and Mission neighborhoods. People also responded with sources for finding Narcan and with advice on how to use it. Residents can get Narcan from the Community Behavioral Health Services Pharmacy at 1380 Howard Street. Detailed instructions on how to administer Narcan can be found on the DOPE website at harmreduction.org. They also have a YouTube video titled How to Use Narcan with the DOPE Project. The DOPE Project also provides overdose prevention and response services for people who use drugs or who are in close contact with others who use drugs. Their Narcan distribution and trainings are held at the 6th Street Harm Reduction Center at 117 6th Street during operating hours Tuesday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. This is the final episode of our six-part series on San Francisco's overdose crisis, and I'm happy to end it on a positive note. It's gratifying to see so many residents showing compassion, because if there's one thing I've learned from my reporting, it's that stigmatizing people with a serious drug use disorder makes things worse. But the story doesn't end here, and since drug-related fatalities keep adding up day after day, our coverage will continue. Future reporting will investigate the impact of city, law enforcement, and public health policies, especially on the most marginalized members of our community. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider listening to the rest of this series, San Francisco and the Overdose Crisis, to get the full picture of how we got here, what's helping, and what might be making things worse. And if you have listened to this series, thank you. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional music was supplied by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. Subscribe to our podcast by looking for Civic from the San Francisco Public Press on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support our work by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate. Thanks for listening.